Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. As per last week, when someone gives you instruction very clearly about what to do and not to do, to like not die and lose your city, you follow the instruction instead of being an absolute idiot, Turin. Yep, fair. Uh, Gala? Um, I guess I'm about to be bullied in my video on, so just a second. Yeah, no. Uh, man, they were mean to Brandir, is my whole comment. Uh, no. Was that his name? Yes, it was. Man, that was uncalled for. Absolutely like, so. <laughs> Oh, only I will go with turn on this crazy quest. No one, no one else of the general public who will be vast as a public has decided to come forth. Brandir, you idiot! Why aren't you coming? Literally, the one person who explicitly would not be good at coming on this quest. Why aren't you <laughs> doing it? And then someone's like, oh, "Okay, fine, I will." And they're like, "Oh yeah, see, Brandir, this is your fault somehow." Still, that was—I don't know—that that was uncalled for. The only question I, I have for yeah. him is like, I know this I know. dude was like. A coward, in a, a coward in the sense like he did not go like and finish the quest either. like he said he would but like give him some slack it was a fucking dragon like I would I would I would question my life choices also in the middle of going to kill a dragon who murdered an entire city and like several won several battles and like is only stopped by dwarves like you know like some cowardice is understandable in that ca- in that case. Case like d- yeah, just you're talking as a guy. About, you're talking <laughs> about Dorlis. You're talking about Dorlis, yeah. not Brandier. But no, no, but like it's Brand Brandier who kill him. Yeah, that was yeah. also uncalled for. That was also very it, uncalled for. Like, like the guy is already like shitting his pants. You don't have to like make it worse. He I mean, it's unclear. The thing is, it's unclear why Brandier kills Dorlis, right? Yeah. Like, we don't know why. Later parts of the text, after that kind of, I don't know, made me think they were trying to imply that he had been under some sort of thing with Glorung, the same way Turin had been earlier. But that wasn't made, I I think that wasn't really implied until after he'd killed Dorlas. Yeah, like, for whatever reason, I do think it's made clear that he's not thinking straight, whether this, like... like grief over Niniel or whether it's um uh like Glaurung magic is I think ambiguous but he's not thinking straight is definitely one and then on top of that there's like complicating factors in terms of like what was the actual thing he killed Dorlas for right was it for turning back from the quest was it for shaming him like in front of their people for no good reason like yeah. Because Dorlis deserved it. Um <laughs> Rob, what do you what do you what do you what do you want to talk about in this chapter? Um I don't have anything in, in specific. Uh one thing that struck me this time, I, I don't know why I didn't remember it. Um but I didn't rem- remember how gruesome um Findulus's death was. Mm-hmm. It was pretty. 
uh, I don't know if hardcore is the word I want to use, but hardcore by Tolkien standards. Um, and it kind of shocked me. I was like, why didn't I remember this from last time? I, yeah, I did remember that. Um, just, I'm just going to throw this out there, but Findulus dies like a Christian martyr. Mm. Mm. I, I have to find it again and like, I will side on like the mm, other yes. <laughs> how would you how would you justify that uh, that position? Uh, the visual imagery of it. Most of the time, when I hear that language of being like um, like pierced by a spear, when you're already like on a wooden object, like the tree or cross like that reminds me of crucifixion imagery um of your body like your torso being pierced by a sphere sphere it also reminds me a little bit of oh god the one really homoerotic saint sebastian maybe oh, yeah. the one yeah, who's like, like arrows yeah. everywhere yeah the 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 like naked dude tied to a tree pierced with arrows or whatever oh. just slightly bothered by the arrows Hmm. I don't know. I'd almost, I'd almost think there has to be some other source because she's, she's kind of pinned to the tree by the spear, right? Um, it's like the crucifixion imagery. Like normally, obviously, you have to be, um, in the position of the cross, uh, whether upright or upside down, and then the the spear in specific is like an act of mercy from the Roman centurion um, who's going against orders. So it's like a very different context. And then there's like a lot of other like nailed to tree sort of imagery that you get from some um, like Norse sort of sources. I don't know. I just think there's something else that might be a closer um, parallel if we were more of historians and dug into it medievalists yeah <laughs> I, I okay it's absolutely not the spear and a tree uh but like because like this like my brain that is mixing up like christian and like wooden object and die with pointy things i'm thinking of Lazian father <laughs> and <laughs> yeah that's not the same like being pierced i know um but like yeah i don't know like i think the gruesome mention also like brain fucked up my brain and like many things but like interestingly Vlad the Empire was like doing that in the name of God of like fish like he was like terrifying but he was officially on the side of the Christians so yeah. officially <laughs> I think you mean like like according to him <laughs> yeah like he was officially like in his own world but like yeah Right. I'm it's pretty sure like most Christian was like either ignoring that he existed or we're like, well, we're gonna ignore he exists because like I don't want to have any dealings with this dude. He's crazy. Um, okay, that's like the opposite of official though, because official would imply that like some higher office was like, yeah, enough. you keep doing what you're doing. I mean, he's a high office anyway. Like, I mean, it's official enough, no? <laughs> no. I don't know anything about Vlad the Impaler. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I don't I don't know enough to like actually support my my stance but um 
he was claiming very strongly that he was doing that from like and also at the time like christian don't have like any reason to be like yes we know that's terrible like because crusades happen so like shut up <laughs> uh, <laughs> and like it's also like the time when the inquisition is going around so like also they have nothing to say to Vladimir Fallon but like being cruel and terrifying okay I'm watching you catholic church <laughs> man i'm so so excited for this spicy podcast all of the all of the current all of the current Christian members of the club, if any of them listen to this, it's like two ex-Catholics and an ex-Greek Orthodox. <laughs> no, but like, really, like, okay, like, you, I, we had this discussion about, like, when you realize that, um, like, it's historical figure are uh, live at the same time. Like, Elizabeth, like, Isabel the Catholic from Spain lived at the same time as Vlad Emperor. Like, are you telling me no horror happened in the world from the Catholic Church at the time? I don't believe it. I don't believe one word of it. She invited the Inquisition in Spain. Excuse you. No, that is not okay. <laughs> like no the Jews invite. and the Muslim refrain that from good things. Vladimir Pali was just the Eastern version of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, anyway, all right, I'm going to move on from Back on other people dying from horrible reasons. Turn oh, man. Okay. Okay, so what I've got so far is we're going to talk about the fall of Nargothrond, uh, we're going to talk about Findalus' death, and then we're going to talk about the string of murders and deaths that happen at the end of this, which is going to be great. I'm excited. Um, what I want to throw in for my part of the round table is, uh, I mean, okay, I have a lot of feelings about Neonor, is, is, is one thing, so that's that might come up. Two, uh, I got to the part at the end where Mavlog was like, oh no, I loved him. And I was just, I screamed. I just like, no one else is in the house because Tristan's out. And so I just yelled, oh my god, another one. But <laughs> this one Tori survived. Was just leaving a string of brokenhearted elves. Just all of the elves are in love with Turin, all of them. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, let's let's start with the fall of Nargothrond then. Um, how does the fall of Nargothrond, A, uh, who, whose fault is it? We're just going to put that one out there because that's a spicy Turin. question. And B, um, how does it compare to the fall of other cities? Okay. A, it's Turin's fault. He had um, yeah. he had a booklet of what, how, how to avoid that, and he did exactly the opposite of it like point by point there was even a point specially for him which was do not let get yourself blinded by your pride it's very important that you are <laughs> like you look like a coward at the time he was like i refuse to do that i don't care if it's a god telling me that and i'm like flip the table turn and also partially the fault of nagothronian who like honestly have a gift to choose the worst possible people to follow and like they didn't learn they didn't learn they already did that before and they did not learn so like i'm not fully blaming them but a little bit too because if he had gone alone they would have been fine he would have died like an idiot and end of the story so many broken headed elves saved from torment anyway <laughs> and uh i forgot the second question 
Uh, like also possibly Glorin's fault. Like let's be honest, he's still the one destroying Nangofren, but like they had yeah. they had a list. <laughs> but before you tackle the second question, I think Gala you started to say something. Yeah. Question, which works out if Eloise didn't remember what it was. And um yeah, it's it's I Ulmo must be so tired of this. <laughs> because this is Gondolin. And it's like, what are the chances that it's, like, the exact opposite of 2 or 2, where it's instead of, like, Ulmo gives you the message that you need to do certain steps to stop your city being destroyed. And in Nargothron's case, it's, please become a hermit city that no one knows about, ever. Like, stop being so um, obviously right there, or people are going to attack <laughs> you. And Turin's like, nah, it's fine. Um... And then I guess the story. Whereas Gondolin is like, you guys need to stop just sitting there. That's just not going to work out eventually, or someone eventually is just going to find you and attack you. And Tuor's like, maybe we should listen to this. And Gondolin is like, nah. And they both work out horribly. And Ilmo's just screaming in the ocean. I, I think I think that after the like uh, fall of Doria, Ulmo and Melian has like a me have a meeting and like they complain for the whole time about why do elf not listen when we give them a step by step instruction of what to do to avoid disaster like and then like that they get very drunk and that's the end of the meeting. Yeah, that sounds legit. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's another similarity is that. They're all caused by the same family, which is kind of rough and sad. I guess uh, Melkor's plan worked better than he thought. I think it's the inverse, though, right? Like, Tuor doesn't cause the fall of Gondolin. No, oh, no, you I, mean Hurin, don't you? Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> Hurin's the only one who's broken Turin's record for getting cities sacked. <laughs> Because he um, he leads Morgoth to Gondolin, and all that business with the gold and his anger issues uh, kind of lead to the the fall of Doria, depending on how you want to interpret curses and such. Yeah, inadvertently, but yeah, we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> what was the second question again? How does it compare to the fall of other cities in Tolkien's writing? So Rob kind of mentioned one angle, which is other cities in the Silmarillion also fall because of this one human family. But I think there are also other connections to be drawn. It's, it's my first time reading the Silmarillion. I don't know. I said Tolkien, though, not the Silmarillion. Oh, that's I have to talk about the Silmarillion. There's a dragon involved, like in Erebor. Um, yeah, there's also treasure involved, like in Erebor. That's very true. There's a dragon who comes and starts chilling in the city instead. Um, moral of the story. Careful with the treasures. It attracts dragons. Whether you're an elf or a dwarf. Yeah. That's fair. Okay, shall we talk about the dragon? So, 
Uh, Josh wanted to point out that uh, Glaurung's style of speech is very archaic. Um, Josh, Josh can't make it, but he wanted to say that uh, Glaurung speaks in a style that is more similar to the Valar than it is to anybody else. Just because of how much he hangs out with his mortal. Which kind of makes sense, right? Because it's um, some sort of spirit inhabiting this this physical shell. Um, so presumably that's where the spirit comes from. I thought that language of he spoke through the spirit that was in him was really interesting. Like, almost implying that the dragon body is probably not good at talking. <laughs> but the, the, the inner spirit is. Yeah. It doesn't have much to say about like his archaic way of talking, but like as much as I hate this guy, he has style. Like he has the aesthetic of, and he keeps to it. He sticks to whatever aesthetic he chose, which is like speaking archaically, um taunting people and then like like playing with the truth including uh, in his death um and like fucking with people in like the most unexpected ways and as much as he's an asshole and i know because he's my ex it makes sense in context but i'm sorry for everyone who's listening to the podcast without this context um I respect the fact he sticks to his style. To the end. Yeah. Do you see do you see any differences in like Glaurung's not just you, Eloise, but y'all in general? Like what do you think of Glaurung's style of villainy and how it compares and differentiates itself to other villains in the Silmarillion, like Morgoth and Sauron. I think it's unexpected. Because, like, in the sense that until now we've seen Glaron just being basically a monster truck that just crushes the pottery and, like, destroys the china, just rolls over everything. It's basically a, like, a bomb A everywhere he goes and there's just not stopping him but here he has like i think it's also because it's like the spirits in him that is kind of doing that more than the body um he's cunning and he is he goes for like the weakest and the most painful points too like I don't know how now how understood it is that Turin is worried about his mother and sister, but he immediately goes for like the killing blow, like, oh, they're in danger and it's your fault, you should have stayed to help them. Coward. Shame, shame. But uh, you could also save the other one, who's like literally just left right now. But um, you're a coward anyway, so like, 
no matter what you choose, you won't succeed, you're like a failure. And like he really goes for like all the buttons that will like trigger Turin. Which I mean like there's a ton of them, so like it's not very hard, but uh, <laughs> like he presses them all at the same time, like so painful. And yeah, like it's very manipulative is unexpected from like a creature we've seen just being used as like like uh, these beautiful traps of like the big rock bald rock that just goes down heavy here. artillery yeah yeah and now he's using Sauron's style of villainy like words even if like Sauron is a bit different in the sense that he will not outright lie and I feel that Glaren doesn't have this stopping him. Glaurung will lie, he doesn't care. Glaurung does lie. Glaurung lies to Turin. Oh yeah, he when... pretends uh, his sister and mother are still over there. Yeah, when he says like you have to go find your sister and mother in uh, Dor Loman, they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Which is actually like a departure from Sauron, who yeah. we haven't actually seen outright lie. But Glaurung does both the well-timed truth and also brazen lying. <laughs> it's interesting then with the, the very formal and kind of more Valor-like language he uses, because you do see, at least with Sauron, that Sauron kind of formally and is obviously a Maiar and kind of like a higher power. And so that gives him credibility. Um, well, it also just like maybe is a spirit within the dragon body that does speak like that but it also lends a think a credibility to his words and so you can get away with just saying whatever and it sounds plausible because you said it really fancily yeah it's it's kind of like it reminds me of a cross between the voice of saruman and the black breath of the nazgul and the eye of Sauron, because you have the noxious breath and the effect of putting people into a swoon, like a, an, a black swoon and knocking them unconscious. And you have the eye that pins you in place and sees your soul. And you have the voice. That's a very terrifying combination, especially when it's also in this body. tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This tank of fire. I, I don't know, this might say... be reading too much into it. Oh, you go. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I just, as I mentioned last week, I just adore that one of his, I won't say his most powerful weapon, but like, like, him taking a bath is super powerful. Like, the fact he stinks so bad that he can pollute a, a river it's just like it's very sad but it's also at the same time hilarious because like what the fuck dude it's like what happened to you uh gala i thought oh i thought um 
the other kind of thing that was disquieting about Glaurum, and I don't, this isn't textual at all, this is just the sense I got from it, um, but he's been sent out to be a tank and, like, destroy um, Nargothrond. But I, you get the sense that some of the stuff he's doing and the mind games he's playing is, is he's like he's acting a bit on his own agency too. And so there's like, oh, well, you know, I've wrecked Turin's life. Now it's time for me to sit here. I was not told to sit here and hoard all the treasure. That's just me because now I'm, I'm out on my own. And so he has agency, which is interesting because a lot of the time you don't get that from the servants of um, Morgoth and Sauron. They're, they're just kind of like moots and they do what they're told. But Glaurung feels more intelligent um, and independent minded for um, one of their one of their names yeah he's parallel to angolian's in the sense that like he's doesn't seem to be following morgoth just because morgoth like, is stronger he's following morgoth because like it suits him at this moment and like i don't know how how much morgoth could force him to do things maybe a bit more than angolian because he probably would not shit his pants in front of Glaron, but like, uh, there's definitely the sense that Glaron is with Morgoth just because it's fun. Like, they have the same taste for destruction. So, like, the interests co coincide, kind of thing. Glaron's sense of being an independent agent is also stronger in the Children of Hurin. So I don't think, like, I think that's a good reading. Um, it's interesting, though, because he's constantly kind of walking this line between being an independent agent who's doing his own schemes, while also textually being kind of thematically paralleled to Morgoth as this force of Morgoth in the world um and like what I mean by that is that Morgoth has made this I don't know pact or put this curse on uh on Hurin um after like you know a back and forth like a discussion Glaurung is both the one carrying that curse out and also the one sort of reenacting that curse in miniature upon Hrin's two children. Which leads me to another question, which is, uh, why does Glaurung treat uh, Turin and Neonor so differently? Um, well, I mean, that gets him the results he wants. Kind of sets up, um, the, uh, the tragedy that he wants to, uh, to see play out. Is Turin more easily manipulated than Neonor? think textually, yes, um, by about three words, where Turin just stops, and then Neonor's like, oh, she tried, but it didn't work. But that doesn't, I don't know if that means, like, a, a huge amount. That could also just be down to, like, the the way the sentences 
had to play out to sound good together. I think a little bit. I'm because as you no, go ahead. last week, like his his mother's son and she's his she's their like father's daughter. Like Kieran is like resistant. Um like the last information we have of him is that he is in a very, very, very uncomfortable situation and he knows his family is cursed and still he doesn't break. Um, um, and I, to, a, to an extent, Moen doesn't break either, but like we see it's more out of sheer stubbornness than like stubbornness and pride like she would rather starve than break she would rather have her and her daughter die uh, in poverty than like give in to whatever whoever is coming has come to Islam um so yeah this is like i don't know like i know heron would do the same but at the same time i don't know i feel there's like some it feels different with her like eh, i don't know i don't know why, why it's different with the two of them but like i think that reflects in bit like in Turin and you know like Nino knows what's like I think Nino sees what's good and bad for others too uh, versus Turin has a list of what is good for others and just throws it out the window um, so I think there's a bit of that too So, okay, Nia, can you hear me? Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. here you were never like i was always here yeah really okay you all froze for me and it like was being weird so, um, so i don't know a, we have a lot of crunchy audio for kara to uh... <sighs> sorry kara <laughs> like it literally just wasn't following my commands for like muting and unmuting or at least it didn't look like it was so i couldn't tell what was happening on the screen so uh, yeah Sorry, Kara. Um, well, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to read you some bits from Children of Hurin because, like, 
like it is in general just a more detailed telling and Neonor is done dirty in literally all versions of the tale but the particular way that it's presented in the Silmarillion like especially does Neonor dirty and you can you can even just see that in terms of what the focus is meant to be like the Silmarillion version is of Turin Turimbar and the longer version is the children of Hurin. <laughs> but yeah, so I wanted to uh, read you a couple bits about Neonor. Um, okay. And there we go. Okay, so the first one is, there's a little bit more detail uh, about the, the whole part where she tries to convince Morwen not to go. Um, so, okay. Uh, yeah, so like Morwen leaves and then when Neonor or whatever so okay um then the others turned and saw that the sun shone upon a head of gold for it was neonor and her hood was blown back by the wind thus it was revealed that she had followed the company and joined them in the dark before they crossed the river they were dismayed and none more than morwen go back go back i command you she cried if the wife of Hurin can go forth against all counsel at the call of kindred, said Neonor, then so also can Hurin's daughter. Mourning you named me, but I will not mourn alone for father, brother, and mother. But of these you only have I, no you only have I known, and above all do I love. And nothing that you fear not do I fear. In truth, little fear was seen in her face or her bearing. Tall and strong she seemed, for of great stature were those of Hador's house, and thus clad in elvish raiment, she matched well with the guards, being smaller only than the greatest among them. What would you do, said Morwen? Go where you go, said Neonor. This choice indeed I bring, to lead me back and bestow me safely in the keeping of Melian, for it is not wise to refuse her counsel or to know that I shall go into peril if you go. For in truth, Neonor had come most in hope that for fear and love of her, her mother would turn back, and Morwen was indeed torn in mind. It is one thing to refuse counsel, said she. It is another to refuse the command of your mother. Go back now. No, said Neonor. It is long since I was a child. I have a will and wisdom of my own, though until now it has not crossed yours. I go with you, rather... Rather to Doriath, for reverence of those that rule it, but if not, then westward. Indeed, if either of us should go on, it is I, rather, in the fullness of strength. Then Morwen saw in the grey eyes of Neonor the steadfastness of Hurin, and she wavered, but she could not overcome her pride, and would not, save the fair words, seem thus to be led back by her daughter as one old and doting. I go on as I have purposed, she said, come you also, but against my will. Let it be so, said Neonor. Then Mablung said to his company, Mablung is like the Greek chorus, Truly, it is by lack of counsel, not of courage, that Hurin's kin bring woe to others. Even so with Turin, yet not so, yet not so with his fathers. 
but now they are all fey, and I like it not. More do I dread this errand of the king than the hunting of the wolf. What is to be done? Okay. The the we next bit. I feel yes, even worse for Mabling because the whole time, the whole time he's trying to pick up the pieces of whatever the family of Herin is doing, and like he ends up with like survivor's guilt over it. I'm so sorry for him. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so then, the next bit is Glaurung's conversation with Nianor. Um, which, first, she gets, like, there's more detail. Like, instead of kind of randomly wandering to the hill, she gets thrown from her horse. Um, like, she shakes off the blind terror that affects all of her companions and the horses, but she gets thrown, and so she's lost in the mist. Um, and then it says, her heart did not fail her, and she took thought, and it seemed to her in vain to go towards this cry or that, etc., etc. So she just... Then she stepped forward and looked westward. And there, right before her, was the great head of Glaurung, who had even then crept up from the other side. And before she was aware, her eyes had looked in the fell spirit of his eyes, and they were terrible, being filled with the fell spirit of Morgoth, his master. Strong was the will and heart of Nienor, and she strove against Glaurung, but he put forth his power against her. What seek you here, he said. And constrained to answer, she said, I do but seek one Turin that dwelt here a while, but he is dead, maybe. I know not, said Glaurung. He was left here to defend the women and weaklings, but when I came, he deserted them and fled. A boaster, but a craven, it seems. Why seek you such a one? You lie, said Nienor. The children of Hurin, at least, are not craven. We fear you not. Then Glaurung laughed, for so was Hurin's daughter revealed to his malice. Then you are fools, both you and your brother, said he, and your boast shall be made in vain, for I am Glaurung. Then he drew her eyes into his, and her will swooned, and it seemed to her that the sun sickened, and all became dim about her, and slowly a great darkness drew down on her, and in that darkness there was emptiness. She knew nothing, and heard nothing, and remembered nothing. Um, and then the last passage is... Uh, Mablung, again. Um, where, uh, okay. Mablung says, uh, okay, Mablung is talking to Turin at the end, and it's just a complete mess. So, anyway, um, then to the wonder of the elves, Turin laughed loud and shrill. Is not that a jest? He cried. Oh, the fair Neonor. So she ran from Doriath to the dragon and from the dragon to me. What a sweet grace of fortune. Brown as a berry she was, dark was her hair, small and slim as an elf child. None could mistake her. Then Mablung was amazed and said, But some mistake is here. Not such was your sister. She was tall and her eyes were blue, her hair fine gold, the very likeness in woman's form of Hurin, her father. You cannot have seen her. Um... <laughs> Can I not? Can I not, Mablung? cried Turin. But why no? For see, I'm blind. Did you not know? Blind, blind, groping since childhood in a dark mist of Morgoth. Therefore leave me. Go, go back to Doriath, and may winter shrivel it. A curse upon Menegroth, and a curse upon your errand. This only was wanting. Now comes the night. Yeah, anyway, and then he goes and kills himself, because 
he's very nuts. Okay. <laughs> I know that at the end, Tarinis has lost all of his marbles and he's not trying to find them again. But super rude that he lived his whole life convinced he was cursed and know how much he sucks and the last thing he does before killing himself is cursing someone who just who just has a disgrace to just ha trying to like help him it's not Mablung's fault if Nienor forgot everything and become like Niniel. It's not Mablung's fault if like she got lost in the first place and like so glow around. It's not the first it's not even his fault if in the first place she left Oria. Moen. Uh like he's just trying to pick up the pieces and like pad and pad everything to like make the accident less worse. And like and he gets cursed with his whole kingdom just because Turin is throwing his fits after losing his marble. Because he got so much bad luck, but part of the bad luck could have been avoided if you had followed what the god told you. Just saying. Turin. <sighs> This is very rude to curse someone with your almost dying breath when you choose when the dying breath is gonna happen first and two when you know how bad it sucks to be cursed very mean very mean bad turin <laughs> turin growls the response to this entire story i mean yeah <laughs> i will argue that um yeah, this morning I, I was reading that, and um, my first thought was like, if to, if if we ever had to make a like a university or high school AU of the Silmarillion, Turin is a guy who just wrote whatever on the assignment that is not the assignment. Like, that's how stubborn he is. <laughs> he's decided he's gonna fail school because he's cursed. But the reason he fails school is because he does exactly the opposite than what the teacher asked him to do. I mean, you guys were literally present school adaptation of Turin. All of you. You were all there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hal? Hal shows up wearing, like, netting and, like, black lipstick. Oh, yes. Yes. That was very accurate. <laughs> By the way, I have a perfect dress for Moen, so like if you want to go back with this AU, like <laughs> just I mean, saying. I'd love to do we wanted to write a sequel to that murder mystery. It's just then there was a pandemic. As if that would stop you. <laughs> but yeah, okay, any other thoughts on like the passages that I read? that have more detail on, like, Turin and Glaurung and Nienor. I really like this Nienor. She seems to have a bit more agency. I, I probably fucking gave the accent with the number four, I'm sorry. Uh, 
uh, than she does in the three lines she has in the Silmarillion. Um, she also seems to be less like a lost little devil, though, a D-O-E, you know, like fragile little Bambi running everywhere and that everyone has to protect, like I will note that she does absolutely still become exactly that when she becomes Menial, which is honestly part of what I find interesting about her character. Yeah. I mean, as usual, I think it's a real shame to lose a lot of the um, like subtlety and nuance from Tolkien's writing um, in the, the process of condensing the Silmarillion. A lot of beauty there that you know you don't get to see unless we um, try access to the other books. And on that note, I have to go to class. Oh damn! Okay. It's strongly well, recommended, but like we're following Turin at the moment, so you can absolutely do the absolute opposite of what you're supposed to do. It's in brand. Mm. Do either of you remaining folks, like, were you there for when they read uh, Turumbar and the Foaloke in Lost Tales? Because I want to ask somebody what Neonor is like in that. No, because I don't remember. I, I wasn't there. I she hasn't arrived on the scene yet. Okay, gotcha. So I can catch up on Friday. She's a little bit older, though. Okay. If I remember correctly. Other than that, no, she hasn't arrived on scene yet. Fair enough. So we haven't had her characterized. You did get to the part, yeah, I just remember the conversation about the part where Beleg died and then Turin hits him on the mouth. Mm -hmm. It's a thing, and it happens. Um, to your point about uh, Christian imagery, though, I, uh, the first thing I associated that with was like a, a Judas sort of situation. Uh, which part? Uh, well, just Turin kissing, uh, Beleg. Oh, what does that have to do with Judas? I don't know anything. Well, so Judas, uh, is the one who betrays Jesus and yes. is kind of responsible for his death. Um, but he betrays him with a kiss. Like, that's how he uh, notifies the, the Romans, I guess, um, who Jesus is. Uh, yeah. And it's ambiguous where he kisses him, but it's probably on the mouth, because that, that would have been pretty common. Um, okay. Even between, like, males, close relatives at the time. Like a kiss on the lips. Okay. Well, that does explain why Tolkien wrote that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very specific phrase. I don't know. I like I like to do. Oh. <laughs> okay, you can't go back. Bad, I like I like to follow the um, uh, Turin reciprocating Beleg's love reading. Okay, what do we do? <laughs> We're gonna circus up. Um, I, I love your cat. She's so cute. <laughs> yeah. 
She's a nice cat. A little bit angsty, but nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, I like to read the, um, do the Turin reciprocating Bellig's love reading, but I think probably a, a better reading is that Tolkien's going for some at least loosely Christian symbolism. Um, I looked at, more into that sphere through Findelis uh, bending it into a tree. It's a closer parallel to a story about Odin putting uh, himself to Yggdrasil, but there's a lot of debate around that, whether that's the original uh, tale or if that's sort of like a heavily Christian-influenced uh, piece of imagery. Huh. Okay, because the version I know doesn't fear and just involves hanging himself. Mm. Yeah. That's it. That's all my research showed, but it was very short. Not, not a academic paper worthy. Hmm. I mean, I kind of like the implication that, like, Findulus dies and that's the death of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Because Odin's thing is all about wisdom. So she's dead and there's no more wisdom to be had. We're now. Yeah. I mean, the line to almost cut because Glauron took a bath. Um, <laughs> in any case, they don't listen to him, so it doesn't matter. Uh, no one asked Millions about her opinion, which is a shame because it's a very good opinion. And when she gives it anyway, they don't listen, which is a shame because it's a very good opinion. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, like the line to wisdom is very much cut in everything, and uh, half of it is uh, partially cut by like men being stupid. <laughs> I think Morwen is also pretty stupid, to be fair. That might just be because there's like 10 to 1 men. Yeah, Morwen. Morwen has kind of all the same flaws as Turin, like, especially the overwhelming pride one, but also the stubbornness. Which is a recipe for disaster. Having I mean, I guess the flaw, yeah. Having one of the two is fine, but, like, if you mix the two, it's like, you're stubbornly overly proud. Which is, like... Basically, oh yes, I'm gonna try to open this Moria door by like slamming my head into it. That's the best way to do it. And yes, it's everyone pointed out it's a stupid idea, but I'm too proud to go back because I've started to slam my head on this freaking Moria door, so might as well continue until it opens. I actually really like Morwen in pretty much all iterations of her because I feel like Tolkien puts his women on a pedestal a lot. Um, and Morwen feels more like a real person than a lot of women in Tolkien. I like, I like that she's a super flawed person. I mean, I feel, okay, the thing is that Morwen like, I understand what you're saying, like, she's super flawed and stuff, and I, I think one of the reasons I, like, I'm not too annoyed by, like, her stubbornness and pride is that, um, except for her unfortunate daughter, it doesn't affect much, like, 
many other than herself. You know, like, like I mean, arguably, it kind of shaped Turin and the person he becomes. Yeah, that's fair. But in the sense of like, for Turin, and I think it's it also might be due to like his agenda and like the place agenda have into like influencing other, but like Turin leads people continuously to ruin <laughs> like and it's not like a, a group of people or friends it's like basically everyone he meets eventually dies because they followed him they trusted him and he made a bad decision out of pride and sometimes we pointed out it was a bad decision sometimes we're given a list that it was a terrible decision and <laughs> he still does it anyway this is more when, like, probably would do that if she was a man, I think. Would be as destructive as Turin. <laughs> but because she's less in position of power, her influence of, like, the... Dis like, yes, I will argue that... Yes, it's very arguable that... And, and very, like, clear that some of the people who died when she goes... Uh, finding her son, yeah, like they died because she was stubbornly going there. Um, but it's not the whole of Doria dying. Uh, and they also where, like, where, where that it was a bad decision and that they would follow in bad decision and that there was a like, high likeliness that they would suffers the consequence of this bad decision not that is like makes their death more understandable but like I think that they could have walked away more easily in a way um so yeah like even though it's very true that she definitely shaped Turin I don't know if the, that stubborn that stubbornness is genetic or something, uh, and so like there's a gene she passed on something like that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like she definitely shaped Turin, and as a result, the ripple effect is that everyone who dies because of Turin's stubbornness and pride kind of dies because of Morwen, but like very very remotely. It's still Turin making the decision. This is like Morwen doesn't have such a disastrous effect like when she's starving in Hithlum and like being and she's poor in Hithlum she's alone being poor in Hithlum like not it's not oh the lady of these people is proud and dangerous and so we're gonna like make everyone pay for that it's we're gonna make her and her daughter pay for that it's very like limited in a way uh and then, like, she dies, so, like, well, she goes to Doria, has some elves killed because they followed her to find her son, and then she dies, so, like, she can't have any more people <laughs> killed. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Turin is, like, has a wake of destruction behind him because he just, he's just followed, no matter how bad the thing around him happened. He is followed, and people keep following him and his bad decisions to their ruin. 
And so, yeah. Despite her flaws, I think Morwen is less destructive than Turin. Oh, definitely. Like, least kingdoms ruined out of this immediate family. That's fair. I would argue least life too, but... Yeah. And like, that's why I like, even though, like, I could be very much annoyed at Morwen, I'm less annoyed as I am when like all the characters in the Silmarillion are being stupid because I'm like she has less effect on kingdom yeah, destruction, well... mass death, battles that just goes to shit because you decided to follow a company of orcs who had your brother, uh, you know, all that. So Anyway, I rambled on. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. It is like kind of hard to respond to though. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's, like... yeah, that's why I'm sorry. Because I know like first it's like a lot and two is like, is there even a point to that? I'm sorry. <laughs> um Yeah. I think what you said about um Turin or like Morwen as a man would be Turin is quite interesting because of like what I just read in the Children of Hurin, where it kind of says that Neonor as a man would be Hurin. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know what to I don't know what to make of that entirely. But it's really interesting. And it also, I guess. I don't know. It almost like says something about how restrictive the gender roles are in Balerion because Neonor doesn't get to do a lot before Glaurung like snuffs her out like a light. Yeah, I think it's partially due to the fact she's a woman and partially due to the fact that she has she's her mother cursed. making her like strong decision. Like before the disappearance of Morwen, like Yes, Neonor makes the decision to follow her, and as we've seen, like, Morwen disagree with that, but, like, one of the things Neonor does say is, like, until now, I followed what you said we'd do. And that's the first time we, like, clashing, basically. So I hear it a bit like, until now, Neonor just followed whatever her mother did. Um, and, like was happy with that, like, thought it was an actual good idea to do that. Or, like, she was too young to actually have an, idea, an opinion on that. Um, and, yeah, like, she doesn't have a lot of time to make her own decisions before, like, she's under the influence of something else or someone else. And that's, that's a shame. Um, something else that's kind of interesting from a narrative point is that... Uh... While Turin is still called Turin by the text of the Silmarillion, even when he takes on other names, uh, Neonor becomes Niniel in the narration when she loses her memory. I think it's because otherwise we would realize far too strongly that incest is happening. You know, like you can like put that, I mean like, 
I'm not saying we don't realize because we know who Niniel is, but if you said, like, I'm gonna talk in shipping uh, tags, if you had the tag Turin Leonor, it would be more obvious there's incest going on if you know those characters and if you have, like, Turin Niniel. And it, I think it's just me, but like. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I di I disagree that that's why that yeah, changed. I would also tend to disagree. I think it's that no matter what name Turin takes on, he is still he still thinks he's Turin. Like he, you're calling him something else, and that's why he's introduced himself. He's being edgy and wants a cool name like Doom Lord or I forget what they all mean. They're all really funny. But, um, <laughs> whereas as Neonor doesn't know she's. Neonar anymore to the extent she that's not in her head she has no idea she is Niniel to all extents and purposes as narrative is referring to her the way she would think of herself in her head as it is for Turin who is always still thinking of himself as Turin I will just say he doesn't think uh, of himself as Turin he thinks of himself as Turin's absolutely cursed by the world but that's yes, the only yes. difference <laughs> yeah. um yeah, I also think it reinforces my personal reading of this, which is that, like, Neonor dies. Like, functionally, Glaurung kills Neonor, because there's nothing left of her. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me is that she can't even remember how to speak. And that's, that's insane to me. Like, it's like... It's not her identity, it's all of her knowledge that's gone. And that's that's a lot of things to erase. Like and also like it's it makes me question then like because like that has implication if you go deeper <clears throat> on what is like learned and what is innate because like she still know how to walk she still follow Madeline she's not wary of him um, she's scared of the orcs but like you know it's like I, I, I don't have absolute example, it just dawned on me that if you like look into that, what does it say about like, when you look at what happens after she has her memory erased, but you look at it as like she doesn't, she forgot everything she's learned, or like even didn't learn because like memories are not learning, it's just what you live, you know? I mean, it's experiential learning, arguably. Um, but then like, she hasn't forget how to walk. Even though, I actually, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Even though I, like babies don't know how to walk. So like, yeah, maybe you're gonna crush my phone because there's a mention like she has to learn how to walk. I don't know. <laughs> no, like I, I'm just gonna propose like another reading as well, which is that I think you can also read this as um, commenting not necessarily on what's nature versus nurture, but on um, what Glaurung chose to leave her with and what Glaurung chose to take away. 
Um, and from that perspective, the fact that Glenn chose to take language from her is particularly interesting, especially in um, the children of her inversion, where like she stands up to him not just with her strong will, but also with her words. And like he literally takes away the ability for her to speak. Yes. He's taking away everything that is her identity. And speech yeah. and speech and language like would be that. What she speaks would demark her as someone from the people of Haddle. Maybe like even her speech pattern would be demarcating her as like the daughter of Morwen. Like she probably has some ticks from her mother. Like there's no way she could not have ticks of language from her mother. Uh like so I think that's also why he would take that from her, because that would be a tiny hint, like very, very frail, but a tiny yeah. hint. I don't know if he's planning for her to meet Jorin and actually everything going down like it goes down. I don't know if it's like the cherry on the cake for him or if he actually hoped like it would happen like that. But he very much has the idea that if she meets Turin none of them has any clue of what's gonna who is who and like not even the slightest like because herin doesn't know what she looks like uh probably doesn't know she looks like his father or maybe knows but forgot because he's so cursed he has other things to think about uh <laughs> sorry i'm gonna like i'm so mad at that at him for being such like an evil boy uh <laughs> um you know, um, so like the little information he would have about her or could guess she has as her identity is taken away by Galarum. And language would definitely be a thing. I think you don't grow up with Morwen without having a very specific way of like speaking, which is very lovely. Yeah, that does raise the question of how much of this did Glaurung actually plan ahead? How much of this, like, could he have planned ahead? Yeah, like, I think that he didn't necessarily plan for, like, them to marry and commit incest. I think what he had, like, if I if I were an evil mind, I would be like, okay, I can see she's here to look for her brother. And I know his brother is worried about her, but know nothing about her. What could be more evil than making this meeting impossible? Because it, uh, because if she has no identity, even if they actually physically meet, they don't meet as Neonor and Turin. They meet as Neonor and alas, Turin and whoever Neonor has become. So I don't think he planned the whole like I'm gonna fall in love with you and marry you and have your kid and oops uh part but he definitely planned the idea that uh if they meet they won't recognize each other because that's what they want they want to be reunited they want to be able to protect each other or like more like turn want to protect his sister and his sister wants to find him and have her family together and glaron by taking neonor's identity is like <laughs> not happening ever again uh gala were you gonna say something don't think so. Okay. 
yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Like, I genuinely have no idea. I I kind of enjoy reading it as Glaurung being more reactive than having this whole thing planned out because I think that's more interesting and it says more about like what his decisions mean and also about his ability to like turn any given situation to the absolute worst yeah like I don't think he planned like I mean, he didn't plan to find me and all and like erase my memory and stuff, but when he stumbles about it, he's like, oh, yes, I just got a great idea for being a dinosaur. <laughs> and then, like, when he's like stabbed by like Turin and like he pretends to be dead and then he like has him in a coma raised by him, he, he's in, you know, he's like, oh my god, I just got the best idea to being an asshole. And he's like, just repeat, and he's like, you know what? I might be dying. But I'm gonna like stab you until I can because that's how much of an asshole I am. So I think he's like winging it a lot. He's also very lucky. Um, but like as soon as he sees, an, he's also this kind of people who, as soon as they see an opportunity to like pull the rug from under you and make you like crash your face in like the crystal glass pyramid, he's gonna do it. And then he's gonna like stab you with a like cake knife in the back just, just for good measures <laughs> and ruin your reading yeah that's basically that's basically ground and i think that's also parallel to the fact that as we mentioned like he's working for morgoth but he has agency he's just like this little like piece of shit of agent of chaos that is just rolling around destroying everything because he's a freaking like tank uh, and like messing with people because it's fun just because he can and as long as messing with people doesn't go against Morgoth's plans he's still officially working for Morgoth so everything's cool okay um Sorry. <laughs> no that's okay uh Okay, so this climactic sequence, we were talking about it at the beginning. Um, and we were talking about like how the, how the way this goes is basically, uh, okay, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but um, Turin's like, the dragon's coming, I'm going to go fight it, it's with me. And Dorlas is like, I'm with him. Is anyone else with him? Wow, shame on all of you, and especially Brandier. Uh, and then Brandier's like, dude. And then Brandier's relative, Hunthor, is like, well, Brandier can't go, but like, I can go. I'll go. Um, and then the three of them set out. Uh, except then they get to the cliff, and go not Gould. Dorlas is like, oh, fuck, actually, no. Um, and so then Turin and Hanthor climb down uh, and try to climb back up, except Glaurung moves around and Hanthor gets killed, rock to the head. Uh, then Turin manages to get up and stab Glaurung. Uh, and Glaurung screams a lot and almost dies. Um... Turin falls unconscious. Um, 
Neonor, well, Niniel, uh, is like, I'm going after my husband who's with me, and a bunch of the people straggle after her, even though Brandir's like, no. So then Brandir's like, okay, I renounce kingship, but as just an individual, I'm going after. And then Neonor talks to Glaurung, and Glaurung's like, you have an incest baby in you. <laughs> and Neonor's like, oh, fuck. Um, like, runs away into Brandir? Or is Brandir met her before she came on Turin. I think it was like, Brandir caught up to her and was like, let's get out of here. And she was like, no, I'm finding my husband. Like, And then she met saw Turin like that and then talked to Glaron, I think is how it went. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and like she only went with Brandir for a while because she was like, Oh, we're gonna find Turin, right? And so like and then she was like, Wait, that's not the way to Turin. Oh, you want us to get out of here? And she's like, this is a freaking dragon. And he was like, I don't care. The dragon's with my husband. And also like, because uh, when sorry, go ahead. So as a sideboard interesting point, um Niniel did definitely become like very like, oh it is me, a fate child of the wild, and I am a wife. But, uh, like, I instantly starts getting back into that Neonor characteristic of, like, I'm just going to go out and do it. Actually, no, I am going to be very brave and stubborn, and this is what I'm doing. Here is my my agency has come back all of a sudden from nowhere. She's also, like, super pregnant at this point, which is wild. So I thought that I was a fun little... I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was a sidebar. No, 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 that's good. Because, yeah, what I was going to bring up was that, like, she also follows Brandir at first because when Glaurung screams, like, her forgetfulness comes back temporarily. So she's just kind of being led by the hand. And then all of a sudden she wakes up again and she's like, sorry, where are you taking me? No, I'm... So then she goes to do that. Uh, And then... Glaurung dies, and then Brandir Brandir sees the death and then goes back to the people and is like, Neonor's gone forever, the dragon's dead, Turin's dead, thank god. Um, And then Turin shows up and fights with Brandir, and there's like a lot of stuff that happens in this fight ultimately kills Brandir um, because he thinks he's lying. Then goes wandering. Um, Oh, wait. I missed the part where Brandir kills Dorlas on his way back. Okay, that happens. (laughs) Jesus. Okay, then Turin goes and comes across Mavlung's wandering company. And they give him information that confirms that Brandir is telling the truth. And Turin is like, oh, fuck, I did do an incest. Um, And then he has that great line, now comes the night. Um, And then he goes and talks to his sword. And he's like, hi, will you kill me? And the sword is like, yeah, you killed Beleg. I liked Beleg. Die. And Turin dies. And then the men of Brethil arrive, and Mablung is also there and laments that this sucks. Um, and then they bury them. 
Well, they bury Turin, and then they put a memorial to Neonor on the same grave. Yeah. That is quite the concluding sequence, and surprisingly little of it actually focuses on the dragon. What did yeah, you guys I... think of it all? Go ahead. <laughs> I have a, a very petty comment, which is not thematic. Confused to this entire story about how big Glarong is supposed to be because it absolutely is changing from scene to scene. And yo, man, I stabbed him once in the like. Have you seen the anatomy of the thing? It's all fine. You probably missed every single entrance. It's just like so wild. And if he's huge enough to cross a canyon without problem, but like also, like I stabbed him once and he's dead. And also, the pettiest of all comments I have about Glaurung and not being focused on and not being maybe developed very well in this version of the Silmarillion is that he is Glaurung the Lidless, which is a great epithet. It is a very cool imagery because lots of lizards do have that like clear sclera thing. And then also though, like at least twice it's like Glaurung opened his eyes suddenly. Like, oh yeah, okay. Glaurung the Lidless. Again. But yeah, Glaurung, I don't know. Deserved more development and deserved a better death, I think. Hmm. Like, oh. what what are you doing to like the the rest in peace of Tolkien right now? Like with those comments, he's like turning and he's going like, oh my god, no! What have you done, child? And like he's going to Christopher like, what have you done, child? It's so incoherent. <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, we already know that like. Tolkien was sort of obsessed with things being cohesive and like this is so like it makes me think that 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 might in part be the the different versions being stitched together because reading this like I don't know if you noticed but Neonor's eyes were gray in the first passage and blue in the last passage oh I didn't catch that oh man but yeah so that that like made me think that maybe there's like a lot of inconsistencies that I didn't catch. <laughs> I didn't catch the lizard eyes thing though, and that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think it's just because I've I like I've studied lizards. And so it, it made a lot of sense that he didn't have lidless eyes. And then I don't know, I think I just got stuck in my head as a detail. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay, other thoughts on this end. Tolkien to put on every inconsistency in the Silmarillion. So, like, we have a sad Tolkien every time there's an inconsistency in the Silmarillion, and it's hilarious. Uh, so thoughts? I think we'll, yeah. Thought about the death? Well, That's what you're I, okay. About? Oh, yeah, I wanted to say something, too, about that, which is that... Mm -hmm. I think, well, maybe the actual method of his death is anticlimactic. I think his act, like his death in terms of how much damage he's able to do between being dealt a dying blow and actually dying is quite a lot. Yeah. Um and yeah, his words to his words to Niniel in this are I think even creepier. Like he says something about how like the seed of Turin's worst deeds are like growing inside her. And it's just, oh, it's so much body horror. Also, I have to say, like, um, the scene with, like, Turin going to Glaurin and, like, taunting its dead 
dead body um and then being like a ho 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 like hell warm of morgoth la 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 i killed you la 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 just to get his sword just like remind me of like the scene in game of Thrones where like um whoever is battling the mountain and like has him pinned down and like instead of killing him and just leaving things where it goes just taunts him until he gets crushed to death and i'm like that's why you don't taunt when you win you do a clean blow you move on you don't taunt it's just no no very bad idea also you're castering do not taunt do not give any temptation for to fate to like kick you back in the balls directly you knew it was coming fate is a boomerang with you and it always 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 <laughs> hits you in the face you know it turin <laughs> you have experience about how fate hits you in the face and here it goes once again so yeah i also just really felt for the people of Rathel in this one like i we can assume that there were division between them before turin and neonor comes along but they seem to have made that so much worse like brandir was just their leader this whole time and they don't seem to have felt the need for their leader to be like a buff man of war until Turin comes along. They seem perfectly fine having a leader who's disabled but is a good leader because he's like a healer and is wise. I mean, that's just a pro another proof that Turin leaves people to their worst decisions. Like, Nagothrun was like kind of led by the uh, there's a council of Ulmo and suddenly Turin is like almost saying bullshit because I can't be super cool in battle. Who wants to be super cool in battle with me? And they're like, we could all die or we could all live, but we could also be all super cool in battle and die. And they follow Turin. So I think it's like, I don't know if it's part of the curse of Turin or his character or the fact he's super charismatic, but it feels like, yes, people follow the worst decision he makes, even when they can see they are bad decision and there's like someone wiser giving them advice on which decision to make proof they elected the cursed world instead of listening to Melian because he wanted to follow Turin Nagathron go to battle instead of following Ulmo because Turin is cool the men of Rathil follow Turin uh, I will admit you don't want a dragon in your backyard. That is understandable. You don't have to stand slander the like leader who's like, I don't feel this like menial Turin shit for some reason. And not only and not even for my sake. I just feel like it's not good for them. I don't feel it. Maybe um follow Turin a little less. And everyone's like, you suck. And they stop for It's sad. <laughs> anyway. So there's also a lot of uh, imagery that comes full circle in this story. And I was wondering if you guys 
caught some of it. Like, for example, the deer thing. To be honest, I probably didn't. I don't that's, tend to read for imagery. That's what happens always, at night, so which is always when I'm reading these chapters. Hmm? Isn't like Sorry. running naked in the wood because you're scared it would happen to Saros too? Yeah, what did Saros say that that pissed Turin off so badly, Saros? That uh, the women of Hislam are like, well, then they just run naked in the wild. Clad only in their hair, like deer. Yep. <laughs> really so what do y'all, <laughs> so what do you guys make of that? <laughs> um... <laughs> Cyrus has a premonition, but he was not aware he was talking about me and all, and he should have been, like, uh, <laughs> clearer, or, like, and this, like, I don't know. I feel he had a vision. He should have talked to Million about it first and be like, I don't know, I feel like the image of naked women running in the wood, like, clad in the hair, like, there, is very, like, associated with his limb and Turin for some reason, but, like, I, should I insult him about that, or should I talk to you and, like, try to figure out what the heck that means? <laughs> so, Amelian, I had a, I had a weird dream about, like, a, a naked human woman running through the wood. No, like, not like that. No, like, it was, like, a pathetic. It was actually really creepy, and it's, like, something to do with Turin. No, not like that. No. <laughs> Right. That's why he didn't have that conversation. <laughs> uh, no, but the thing is that it would have been weird if Thingol was around because Thingol would have just like this utterly confused. But um, like if it's only million, million's like you know what? I mean, I've seen Valinor. I have my own visions. It's weird sometimes. It'd be like that. Um, <laughs> but like as soon as you have single in the picture, like Sarah said, like you know, no, it makes it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. But like I want it to make sense, but like I don't, I think it's a bad thing. Like I will show you. I'm gonna run naked in the wood and show you. It's a bad thing. Some bad thing happen when you run naked in the wood and poof, you guys. And so like no one, everyone forgets about it. Um, but yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. To make all of that worse. Uh, the part of the river that, like, she jumps off of to kill herself is, like, it becomes known as, like, Cabin Nairamar, the Leap of Dreadful Doom, after she kills herself. But before that, it is called Cabin Aras, which means the Leap of the Deer, and is not translated, but the description does say it's a narrow part called Cabin Aras, where a deer would leap over the water. <laughs> So, yeah, this is a fun story. The whole story has, like, Glaurung's awful, twisted sense of humor. The deers reading the stories are like, what is slender? We have, the, we have nothing to do with that. It's all the dragon's fault. Leave us out of this bit, this messed up shit. Okay, sorry, deers. And another thing is, the, uh, the significance of Turin finding um, finding Ninia uh, Findulus's grave um, because 
like Findulas is described as pale and blonde and her hair is like the sunlight glinting off of Ivrin or whatever. Um, and Neonor is also described as pale and blonde. I think Shireen should stop making decision out of guilt because um, like out of guilt, he goes like to Hithlum where his mother and sister are definitely not in there anymore. Out of guilt, he decides to take in this like poor lost lady who looked like the woman he abandoned and he should not have abandoned um, and who died as a result of that. Um, that's the two examples I have, but it very rarely happened twice. Um, maybe they are all the example of like Shireen acting out of guilt. Uh, when he leaves after Seros, I don't think it's after, out of guilt that he leaves. Just because he doesn't want to be a prisoner. Coward. Um, um, but, like, yeah, like... Turin should, like, talk to a counselor and start to... Um, to deal with his emotions and not act upon them immediately. He makes bad emotional decisions. And I'm not saying it's not fair to, like, it, I'm not saying he shouldn't have emotion, like, that's not true. But, like, when you're emotional, be little bean, you have to know how to deal with your little bit of emotions. Because otherwise you become a bean of destruction. And it's very bad for everyone about you. <laughs> yep. You, you leave behind a string of broken-hearted elves. Okay, uh, other other fun things. That when Turin says, here comes the knight. Turin says, the day shall come again. Yep. Because Turin has hope, even though he's literally in Angband and has to walk to see how dumb his son is being. And his son is like, time to abandon all of what my father believed in. Including myself. And he drama queen everything and yeets it away. I am not impressed by Turin. Like like the last part, oh, yes. yes. Like the last part I could I I, I, I will not even take keep, take against him the last part of the story, except maybe the curse on Doria's and Mabling because Mabling really really didn't do anything wrong. It just even more, even more than Tyrion, he's just at the bad place in the bad time. It's so sad. Anyway, but like, so even, except for this curse part that's very rude, Tyrion, like, the part where he's like, like, at the end he's just completely mad with grief and like, horror and whatever thing that makes a, a beautiful combo for explosion, explosive disaster. So like, not blaming him too much for like, not being very rational at the end, but like, there's a whole chapter of him not being rational where he's not crazy. When he's not in absolute pain and dismay and like hasn't been just uh, acidated by a dragon blood, you know. So like most of the time he's supposed to have at least two neurons, two brain cells working together and like, you know, they're very much not working together. And it's sad. It leaves a lot of broken-hearted 
elves behind and dead people. Elves or dwarf or men. Or sister. So, yeah. Mablung is really like the Horatio of this scenario. I'm assuming everyone's read Hamlet. Nope. It's gonna be very hard to not have read Hamlet. It's very easy. You just live in France and you don't read Hamlet. Because no one cares about Hamlet too. in France. There you go. Because in France you read Molière. Yeah. I'll revise um, that to include the caveat in Canada then. Yeah. Most high school students in Canada have to read Hamlet. Yeah. I'm not surprised. But I'm sorry for you, Rose. I'm not. Yeah, I wouldn't be the first person to point out the similarities between this and Hamlet and Oedipus. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think that the difference between Oedipus and, like, this story is that in this, in Oedipus, like, it's like, yeah, this is, like, bad thing happening that's not going to happen to you so like they're walking towards avoiding them and that's because they're walking towards avoiding them but they are happen ev eventually but in that it's just Turin embracing his curse and just not trying to do the best like to 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 avoid it like he's just like i'm cursed that's why shit happened so i'm gonna just keep living and just cry about it he's not trying to avoid i mean his curse. i would argue, and I might be wrong, that in the last part of this, um, after he marries Niniel, Turin actually does change and stops being all like, I'm cursed, I'm cursed, oh god, and his behavior directly before the dragon isn't the same as Nargothrond. It's not him being stupid, it's, it's him being like, I promise Niniel I will not go out and fight, and then everyone's like, but can you because we are in trouble and you're a good fighter and he's like you know what that makes sense here is an actually well thought out plan that i have would anyone like to help me the rest of you should abandon brethel because the dragon is not going to want to sit in your rinky dink wood cutting town it's going to go back to nargathana's treasure and it will kill you if you're all here but if you disperse it won't and then we can come back and rebuild that is actually very sensible he's growing he's learned from nargathana he's not got that pride of place anymore he's not keeping a stupid promise to niniel and like he's while he is putting himself as like, I'm the one to go and fight the dragon, he's putting himself in that direct danger, it does make sense, and he does ask for help. And he's not the one that attacks Brandir either, that's just Dorlas acting on his own accord for like no reason. So I, Turin's actually grown a lot as a person by the end of this book, and so I think this last scene is really the tragedy of it. Everything else is him kind of bringing his tragedy on himself, but comparably to like, especially Oedipus, he's trying to do the best, and he is trying to avoid what he thinks would be another tragedy. So Turin at the end, very comparable, and I think a much more sympathetic character uh, by this scene. I think the tragedy of him changing when he's with Niniel is that, like, basically, if she had been with him the whole time, half of this chapter would not exist, because she has a good influence on him. I think similar to the influence like her would have on Morwen, if they had stayed together. Like... Um, like, I think Heron was probably the only one who could convince Morwen to maybe bulge a little bit on her, on her thing, when it was clearly out of fright that she would do or not do something, uh, you know, and, and sadly, 
sadly, sadly, sadly. Uh, <laughs> and like the only time you know and sharing that together and instead of being like a power duo of like brotherhood and sisterhood or siblinghood and like crushing it it's through the tragedy of the fact that they're married because they don't know their brother and sister I think Turin is at his best when he's with people that he loves and who love him like I think Beleg is a good influence on him to a certain extent and I also think that like with regards to the tragedy of um, his character development when he kind of mellows at the end when he's with Niniel uh, I think part of the tragedy is that in that is that it's implied that he might have arrived at that character point earlier if he had chosen to go rescue Findulas. I see what you mean. Yeah. I don't know who tells him that. I think it's actually Glavon tells him to choose between the two. And Iron yeah. He chooses his sister over the elf who's absolutely not related to him but who spent more time with him than his sister did. Yeah. Yeah, there's that really weird moment where it's the narration, like, straight up tells you that, like, Findulas would have been able, like, Findulas is the last thing standing between Turin and his doom, and she, like, might have been able to turn it away from him, which is kind of nuts, and I... Like, she's not Luthien, she's a Noldor, she's... Like, I don't think she should be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, neither is Neonor, though. That's true, Neonor is cursed, too. No, but, like, I mean, like, uh... Oh, yeah, no, never mind. Uh, I think, like, you kept, and so I missed uh, the change in, in subject in the sentences. Um, oh. But... Yeah, well, I, I had understood uh, Findulas is not, like, Luthien and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, well, Nino, he's not Luthien either. But she still stops Turin. Like, I don't think we need a Luthien to stop Turin. Um, yeah. I mean, that's okay. a pretty weird thing of the narration to say, given that the curse has been on him this entire time, and presumably his doom has been on him this entire time. So it's like, is Findelis really able to change that? Because it seems that nothing is able to change that for anyone in this family, and it's above them and above the realm of elves and men at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, but like, it's not necessarily that she's literally going to exert some hidden power to avert his ultimate doom um but you know maybe if he had a wife who wasn't his sister <laughs> that's kind of like the doom we're avoiding just you know by circumstance oh I boy i think it's also the fact that um like it's not about avoiding the doom fully it's about like again like dealing with your emotion instead of reacting to it 
Because, like, I think that's what he's doing when he's, like, settled in this relationship. Is that he's finally taking the time to not be caught up in his emotions, but be his pride, his pride, his anger, his sadness, his guilt. Like, he's not taken in by this emotion. He's, like, he is secure in what, in, in, in his relationship. Uh, and so it allows him to breathe a bit and look at the situation. What does the situation need? What can I do to help the situation? What are the best moves? Uh, but when he's left to his own, he's all over the place because he doesn't know how to deal with his emotion and he ha he doesn't have a balance of someone being like, hey, this is not reasonable. Come breathe a bit and let's think about it. Or like someone to be like, like menial is being like, hey, I need you to do that for me because we care about each other, you know? And even if she asks that, like, because she, I think it's because she asked that, he takes the time to think when he wants to go against that. Because she's, he's like, she asked me that out of caring for each other and because I care for uh, her and she cares for me, I'm going to have to give her freaking good reason for not doing what she asked me to do. And then he goes against it. But he has reasons and she can understand it even if it's painful emotionally it is the best choice and yeah I think that's like the herring balance of Moen that it's like I this ability to understand the passion but at the same time being like don't let it lead you wherever and manipulate you or being manipulated against you breathe a bit how do you what is your plan to accomplish what your passion is pushing you to accomplish and i don't i think that Fingulas would have been able to do that to an extent maybe not to the extent that Nino is able to do it but just having this counterbalance helps we've seen it with Beleg before until he kills him because that's another subject yeah and I guess that's like the curse might still take effect um, so if we imagine a different scenario where Turin is kind of pulled out of himself a little bit so he's not being so like self-focused all the time and he's thinking about other people um, trying to avoid harm coming to those around him like maybe he still kills Glaurung and but dies in the process without any other negative consequences for everyone else um, I just think yeah the 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 curse itself might not be escapable but I think the negative consequences for everyone associated with him um, could could have maybe been avoided Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that we circled back to like the main point out of everything in this story 
which is ultimately like Turin and if how the interplay between his choices and his character arc and his fate all kind of affect each other. I have a question. How interested are you in kind of like precursors and influences on this story? Yeah, um, I find all that pretty interesting. Yeah, very. Cool. I because I started reading like my summary of uh, Kulervo from the Kalevala and then Tolkien's take on Kulervo last time. So I could finish reading my summary. Oops, drops things. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so like last time in the actual Gulervo, I don't know, not, not a lot of important stuff happened. I mean, <laughs> uh, basically just Gulervo's dad, Galervo, was killed by Gulervo's uncle, Untamo. Okay, Gulervo uh, works as a slave for a while. Okay, okay, okay. Um, all right, okay. So he, like, kills the wife of his slave master, leaves, uh, and here we go. Okay, uh, so Gulervo wanders lost for a bit and then decides to return to Undamo's farm for revenge. On the way, he meets a random old woman who in him that actually his parents and his sisters are still alive. This is just an inconsistency that's never addressed. And she gives him directions to where they're living uh, on the borders of Lapland. Gulervo follows these directions and finds his mother, who informs him that one of his sisters has gone missing. Gulervo stays and works for his parents. Like, his dad is just alive now. It doesn't make sense. Uh, but once again, everything, like all the chores that he sets his hand to, like, break. He just breaks things. Um, and the narration tells you that it's because Gulervo did not come to grasp things, have a man's understanding, for he'd been crookedly reared with someone crooked rearing. Uh, so after he breaks a bunch of things, his father sends him out tax collecting, because he's like, that's probably the one thing you can't mess up. Um, and on his way back home, Gulervo first runs into like two well-off looking maidens and tries to seduce them but they both curse him uh then he runs into a third maiden who's like poor and basically drags her by force into his sled and coerces her into having sex with him um after that she asks who he is and he replies that he's Kalervo's son and returns the question to her. She replies that she's Kalervo's daughter and tells the story of how she got lost, and then she runs away and drowns in a river. Kalervo returns home, lamenting. His mother tells him that what he should do is hide from his crimes and live in shame till time brings mercy and the years ease care. But Kalervo refuses to do that and decides instead to go to war and get vengeance on his mother begs him not to go and advise that he doesn't care let his family die. He argues with each of his family members who all say that they will not weep for him, except for his mother who says that she will. Uh, then Gulervo leaves. On the road, he gets a series of mess like, uh, messages 
saying that his family members have died like one by one and each time he refuses to go home and deal with the funeral arrangements until after he slaughtered everyone at instead so after he does that he returns home to find everybody dead and he begs his mother's for help his mother's corpse replies that she's left him his dog so he can go hunting but on his way to go hunting in the forest, Ulervo passes the spot where he raped his sister. Nothing grows on that spot, and the plants cry out in lament. Ulervo, also lamenting his miserable life, asks his sword if it will kill him. The sword agrees happily, and Ulervo throws himself on it. Um, and at the end, a different character from the Evola provides a closing narration that is, Do not folk of the future bring up a child crookedly, basically because even though he grows strong in body, he will never have a man's understanding of it. So, <laughs> just explicitly don't abuse Or this will happen. Uh, okay. Tolkien's story. Previously, we talked about how, like, he assigns meanings to the names, like wrath and weeping, and he gives Kulervo a twin sister, and also a magical dog. Um, but okay. Uh, all right, so Kulervo... Yeah, okay, so then Kulervo has this feud with the wife of the person who owns him as a slave, uh, kills her, she curses him to have like, the worst end ever. Gulervo uh, leaves, wanders lost for a bit, and then decides to return to Unfo's farm for revenge. But on the way, he meets an old woman who is secretly a goddess, the lady of the The old woman gives him directions to Unfo's farm and tells him very specifically to like stay on this one side of the mountain. Uh, but Gulervo strays from the path that he's supposed to be following, and as he's straying, he sees a beautiful girl singing in the middle of the forest. Then, the curse of the smith's wife abruptly falls on him and he gets selective amnesia. Gulervo argues with the girl because he doesn't think she should be wandering the woods alone, but she's afraid of him and tells him, Death walketh with thee, wanderer, and woe is at thy side. He gets angry, she tries to run away, he catches her, and because of, and uh, directly attributed to the smith's wife, uh, quote, not, or the smith's wife's curse, quote, not long did she resist him. Uh, they live together, the sex is applied, uh, until one day she asks who he is, and he replies that he's Kalervo's son and returns the question. She seems horrified, but replies evasively, uh, tells the story of how she was lost, and then runs away and throws herself over the waterfall. Kalervo abruptly realized what happened, and then goes back to farm and slaughters everyone there. The ghost of his mother appears and tells him that she and his other relatives were among those he killed. Uh, the dog also died in this battle, apparently. I don't know, it doesn't say how. Um, Gulervo then returns to the glade where he first met his sister to find that nothing will grow on that spot anymore. He's about to throw himself off the same waterfall, but he doesn't want to, like, foul the river and, like, drown himself in the same water as the woman he loved. Uh, so instead, he asks the sword if it will kill him. The sword agrees happily, and Gulervo on it. I don't see any similarity. What are you talking about? It's entirely different. There's absolutely nothing of that. No, no parallels. 
I just love that in each version, the sword is like, yeah, you're an asshole. <laughs> like, including the Silmarillion. Where it's like, of course I'm gonna kill you. It's not even like giving you, a f doing you a favor. I just, I just waited for that. Like, finally. I mean, that makes a lot of sense of where the talking sword came from, because, I mean, that is a bit, I thought, out of place for the way the rest of the Silmarillion works. There's not a lot of talking. Like, there's an explicit talking dog, which I, is also a bit out of place in the Silmarillion, and it's apparently also great. And it's just like, I I'm, I'm, I took that as the sword did not actually talk, and this is Turin hallucinating and his madness, or like talking to himself, and like... But it makes sense of the detail coming from a different mythos, um, just kind of for that. I don't know what I meant there, but yeah. Yeah, I was like, I read this uh, before I reread the Silmarillion, and so I got to the Lord talking part, and I was like, what? <laughs> and I just couldn't take it seriously. <laughs> but yeah, no. The, the story of Kularvo, like the rewriting of it, is one of the first things Tolkien ever wrote. So the fact that he wanted this sword to lasted from like 1914 to like his death. <laughs> Did he have like a bad general in World War One that he hated so much? He was like, I really wish his sword killed him just because like he's, he's such an asshole. Because like, honestly... I can see that happening. It's like, oh, look at this guy who's parading around with his sword. Like, it's still, like, 1850s. Wish the sword killed him. <laughs> Sorry, Gala, I interrupted. Did you? Oh, no. Oh. I thought because you, have, you had green around your screen, so. There's, yeah, there's some other, like, interesting adaptational things that happen between like like over the course of the Kalevala poems, Tolkien's Kulervo and the and like Turin, Turambar. Um, like some of the other things that happen are like the female characters, like when and Vanona, who becomes Nienor, are like become more developed. Like they don't even have names in the Kalevala. Um and Another thing that's kind of interesting is like what happens with like the appearance and hero is the main character. Cause like in the Kalevala, Gulervo is described as like blonde and handsome, like or Finnish man, so beautiful. But the whole thing is like, you know, even if he's beautiful, if you abuse your children, they'll be shitty and wreck everything and break your plows. Um Whereas uh, Tolkien's Kulervo is like described as like swarthy and ugly and uh, very misshapen features and completely unattractive, um, and then Turin is like dark-haired, like Tolkien, pretty, like the Kalevala Kulervo. Yeah, that's interesting. Tolkien just doesn't like the. The, like, he really very much likes to have people that are problematic be ugly. And one difference, I think, one of, like, the, the like, Turin as Kulero doesn't, like, do nearly as much raping and is, like, 
kind of a more well-intentioned person and that whole like oh but he's twisted on the inside is completely gone so he gets to be attractive again but real Kalervo is still twisted on the inside so he can't be attractive even though that was the point of the original myth because I don't know but it's I don't know it's just it's a thing he does all the time and I'm not sure I exactly understand why it happens so consistently and also now I have discovered outside of the actual Middle Earth series of writings. Yeah. There's there's like like how to say that? Um it's not necessarily the same thing and catch me on that if you disagree. Uh but like the idea that ugly equal bad and beauty equal good parallels in my mind with the um um, it's your fault if bad thing happened to you, you did something to God, or God is punishing you, like, I don't know a lot about the specific, like, religious thought behind it, but I do know that it's a really, it's still a common trope in literature, but it was even more of a trope in medieval literature, because there was more of a widespread sense of uh, the outside reflects the inside. And it's not like medieval people weren't capable of critical thought because, like, they were, and some people did write stories that were specifically like, here's a person whose outside does not reflect the inside or whatever. But the the overwhelming tropes were still like, yeah, like, if you're bad, that will be visited upon you on the outside. Which you can even kind of trace to, like, people's ideas of and stuff like that and what Eloise was saying about like you brought it on your disease back then left more visible marks on people yeah and it feels like Tolkien inherited a tradition that being said his his treatment of Kulervo specifically is kind of really interesting because on one hand there's that he's ugly um because he's problematic thing going on com when you compare him to Turin Torimar. But there's an interesting thing going on on the meta level where, uh, okay, Kulervo from the Kalevala became a major Finnish culture hero, which is bad because when you read the story, it tells you, like, don't be like him. It's really explicit about that. But when Finland was, like, fighting Russia and, like, basically whenever Finland had to get people, like, riled up and nationalistic or whatever, the art returned to Kulervo. Like, when they were fighting for independence, like, there was a painting done that's Kulervo goes to war. And it's, like, a glorified depiction of Kulervo going to slaughter his uncle's homestead, which in the original text is, like, a bad thing. But it's like, oh, look at this good thing that he's doing. Um, and that's, that, like, painting was printed as a commemorative stamp in 1935. I wonder what was happening that year, child fins up. Um, <laughs> and on top of that, like, a, there was a, um, there was, like, a march song or whatever. There was, like, an, an anti-Russian, like, pro-independence song that references Kulervo by name. And it's, the line is like, we will rise like the wrath of Gulervo. 
and then goes on to talk about how we're going to build a new Finland. So that's insane to me, but <laughs> yay, nationalism. So in light of that, it's really, really interesting to me that Tolkien's Gulervo actually does fewer shitty things, but he's seen as an anti-hero, not a culture hero, just because he's not hot anymore. <laughs> <laughs>